are libertarians liberals? Today on The Curious Task, I speak with Janet Bufton. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Janet Bufton. Janet co-founded the Institute for Liberal Studies in 2006 and has worked as a program coordinator with the ILS since 2013. She also manages the Liberal Studies Guides Project. In addition to her work with the ILS, Janet has been an education consultant for Adam Smith Works since 2017, and she also works as a copy editor and consultant in Ottawa, Ontario. Janet earned a Master's in International Affairs from Carleton University, where she focused on international trade and development. She also earned a BA in economics from the University of Windsor. Some of her areas of interest include the works of Jane Jacobs, Adam Smith, Eleanor Ostrom, and Friedrich Hayek. Janet, welcome to The Curious Task. Thanks, Alex. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So, Janet, our question today is, are libertarians liberal? And there are many places to start with and many places we could go with this. And some of our listeners may even find it's, it's a bit wonky and nerdy, but nevertheless, I, I think it's a very important question. So I'm just going to pick a starting point and go with it. But, you know, let's start with something that, again, might make no listener happy, but is necessary. Let's quickly explore and settle on, generally speaking, what you mean by classical liberal on the one hand and libertarian on the other as of today. Oh, sure. Um, so yeah. And, and like nerdy and wonky is sort of my, my jam, but, um, so for liberalism, like liberalism, the standard definition is it's a political ideology that is neutral on, um, what the good life constitutes, uh, so long as the different virtues of the good life are compatible with each other, right? So if my version of the good life is wiping out everybody named Alex, that's not okay. Right. Uh, because it, it, it interferes with your ability to do it, right? Uh, and so it's a political system. It's not a way of making personal decisions. Um, and it has a couple of key tenets. So one really, really important one is uh, equality of individuals. So no one person is more important than somebody else. So you don't get to override my way of living my life and I don't get to override yours. Um, and that has a lot of implications kind of to other to the way that we make decisions as a society, to our rights with respect to each other and with respect to the government. Um, another one is limits on the government, because of course, if we're all equal, the government can't just do whatever it would like. Um, and the third thing is concern about power. Uh, so there are different levels of power in society. And historically, the classical liberal concern was about like government power in particular, right? Because you can't opt out of government power. Um, I think it's important to note that when liberalism as an ideology emerged, um, it was very difficult to disengage government power from things like economic power, right? Because right. the aristocracy and the church were extremely, like they were the major players, right? You probably worked for an aristocrat. It would be weird um, before the emergence of commercial society for you to be like a really self-employed sort of person. Most people depended on people who had a lot of power over them. Uh, like serfdom was very common. And right. so- that's classical liberalism. I think it's useful right now to differentiate this from like modern liberalism, where there's a bit more of a 
there's more concern about economic power as well. Um, and classical liberals have a lot more emphasis than some modern left liberals on the uh, importance of economics as a way of organizing the way that we do things together and coordinating our activities. Um, and that kind of, it's not that there's no concern about economic power necessarily, although for some people there is, uh, but it definitely tamps that down as a like major concern. And more of the concern is about things like police power, uh, regulatory power that can strip you of your property and especially military power in war. So that's liberalism. Uh, libertarianism, I'm going to lean on Peter Jaworski, who I think we've talked, you've talked to um, on here, and he's another co-founder of the Institute for Liberal Studies. And Peter has this, what I think is like the working definition of libertarianism. I think you get into trouble if you use other definitions. So that's the one I'm going to go with. And so he says that libertarianism as a political, uh, like as a political system is the belief in libertarian institutions. That's still not super clean cut, um, but it's going to be very limited government and it's going to be limited to things that respect uh, individual rights, even if libertarianism doesn't take the individual rights as like the basis of that limited government, it's going to be like there's going to be respect. You can't have a limited government that does nothing but enforce slavery. Right. Like that, that would not be a libertarian set of political right. institutions uh, as a like extreme example to illustrate the point. Um, and so that in that way, you include figures like Friedrich Hayek, who people sometimes get grouchy with because he said uh, he endorsed some kind of social safety net. You also include Murray Rothbard, who's like basically an anarchist. Well, no, he's an anarchist. There's no basic about, basic about it. Um, and you've also got like Adam Smith. Uh, is able to be included, whether by accident, um, which it might have been, right? Because at the time, they couldn't have imagined the number of things the government does. But Adam Smith talks about the uh, system of natural liberty, which basically has the government doing a restricted set of things um, and then leaving to the rules of commercial society the, de uh, the decisions that people make. So, and I guess we could fight about Adam Smith, right? There are definitely people who are like, no, he's not a libertarian, but that's like a whole, I'm going to try and restrict my discussion of Adam Smith. Uh, yeah, fair enough. Pains me. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. We got, there's a lot of ground to cover. And yeah, so may as well park a couple of things. Yeah. And, and I'll just really, really quickly say that there is also like a, a libertarianism as a political philosophy. That's something like the non-aggression pr principle. Um, so like, I don't coerce against you except for in self-defense. Um, and that's fine, but much less interesting, I think, uh, to our conversation here today. But I do want to acknowledge that it exists. If that's your political philosophy, then you're going to endorse libertarian political institutions. Um, but that's not the only reason that you could. You could be a classical liberal like Adam Smith, um, whether or not Adam Smith counts. You could be a anarchist like Murray Rothbard. Um, maybe... I'm going to count the anarchists. Uh, we're we're going to, you can be an anarchist like Murray Rothbard, or you can be a like more limited government, uh, classical liberal or old Whig like Friedrich Hayek. 
no, okay, I think that's great. And there's a lot to drill into. And again, I encourage all our listeners to remember what I said at the very beginning. There's no way we're going to cover every single figure, every single nook and cranny of this discussion. But I think Janet just provided a great overview for a lot of different pillars that we can stand the conversation on. I, I would like to get into one small footnote that I wrote down as you were, as you were talking about that in terms of classical liberals. So you talked about, uh, generally speaking, perhaps economic power, the accumulation of wealth, things like that is not as much of a concern to, to classical liberals. Um, well, I wanted to actually make a distinction between two ideas. There's like the accumulation of wealth or quote unquote economic power, and then how that accumulation of, of wealth or economic power was actually gained. So I want to make sure we don't speed past that. Uh, it, it seems to me that when you read people like Adam Smith and, and the, the classic classical liberals, which we'll call them for this conversation, that that itself was still a, very much a concern. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like uh, Smith is not uh, friendly to business people, right? He's got a quote uh, that I'll paraphrase rather than trying to get it right because I won't get it right. But he basically says, look, if 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 business people are getting together, they're going to be trying to figure out a way to cheat consumers. Right. Um, and they're going to use their political power to do that. Um, he doesn't say it exactly like that, but that's Smith's idea of people with a lot of political power is they're going to try and, or economic power, actually, they're going to try and turn that economic power into political power. And if they're not constrained by the rules, if they're not constrained by the rule of law, um, which we should probably include as a like basic tenet of liberalism, the rule of law, uh, they're, then they're going to find ways to break the rules and breaking the rules is going to treat uh, people as unequal. It's an illiberal um, idea for this rules of society to be broken. Right. Yeah. He has that one section at the end of one of the chapters where I think he talks about that and any law legislation or any pro proposal basically from the business community should be looked upon with like the high level of scrutiny, basically, because oftentimes right, exactly. they're looking out for their own interests, not the greater interest, although it's often sold that way. Oh, yeah, they'll, they'll try to they'll try to convince you, right? Like this is this is a tool of political persuasion. If you can convince everybody that my best interest is your best interest, then I might be able to circumvent some of the rules and get special treatment. Right, exactly. And uh, and for sort of a, a footnote on, on the on the anarchists as well, just to add another uh, mix into our gumbo here, if you will, um, we talked about so you got like, uh, you know, classical liberals, and then you have people like, you know, when we're talking about the libertarian sphere, like uh, Murray Rothbard, anarchists. Um, what, what are your thoughts on what I would view? And of course, tell me if you think I, I view it wrong as who people who would be anarchists from more of a liberal strain, that is to say, you do have people that roughly these days identify as anarchists without adjectives or people that are like left libertarians that seem to trace a lot of their roots uh, not to, for instance, anarcho-capitalism or identify with mostly mostly just the idea that the state should go away and everything else is great, but more the idea that we need an anarchism sort of based on like liberal principles, like classical liberal enlightenment principles. What, what are your thoughts on how that all reconciles itself? And would you sort of throw them in the, we'll talk about how classical liberals and libertarians reconcile as two categories, but now that we're in the sort of subcategories, I'm I feel that you those people would be more found in the classical liberal camp. I actually think they're offshoots of of classical liberal values. But but what do you think? Do, like would we just chuck them generally under libertarian? Sure. So I'm gonna I'm actually gonna sort of um, sideline part of your question because this is a really great illustration of why it's a good idea to think of libertarianism as a an endorsement of a set of. A, political institutions. So it doesn't matter. Uh, I think I love anarchism without adjectives. I think that's Voltaire and Claire. But I mean, the and the reason that I like that is it's kind of the same idea. So it doesn't matter why you endorse 
a set of political institutions. And this is why libertarianism is like in practice. It's a coalition. It's not a single political right. project, right? Um, at least this is this is my view. This is not um, going to be popular with everybody. Right. We're going to park but that, like, by the way, for now. Everybody listening, we will yeah, get to no, that. but but like. In this, in the kind of the same way, it doesn't matter if you are concerned, if your like main concern is uh, power and you're like, look, the government is the most powerful thing. We need to do everything we can to decentralize power. We need to give, we need to empower individuals with property rights. We need to empower uh, associations to make their own sets of rules and uh, their own like ways of de defending themselves against the government. We need to have distributed power even amongst the government. And so we want small government that's constrained and not able to interfere with the lives of people. That's one reason for having like libertarian institutions. Another reason is you're just like, look, all power. I almost swore. I don't think we're supposed to swear. All power is silly nonsense. All power is applesauce, right? Like right. we're just gonna throw it all out the window. And so anarchy is the only way to go. Um, so there's going to be, th this is probably not liberal, right? Because, um, or at least we could argue about whether it's liberal, because liberalism has the rule of law and anarchy has a hard time with the rule of law, right? You've got individuals making power or making power-based decisions about how they wield their own power and there's going to be power imbalances. But if you're an anarchist, you're like, this is the best we can do. And so I'm going to endorse a set of political institutions that's basically no government sanctioned power. It's all going to be voluntary decisions. We're going to enter into different um, associations and agreements that are going to structure the world in which we live. And those are all going to be um, in conflict with each other and that will keep them in balance. And that's how we're going to restrict power in individual lives. And so that's why I endorse this set of institutions. That might be a set of libertarian institutions if we're going to include anarchy, right? Because if if we're including anarchy, then no formal political governance uh, is is going to be a political institution that falls under the umbrella of liberalism. You could also think that once we start making political decisions together, those decisions go like run amok. And so the only way, if you're a conservative, for instance, the only way that you're going to be able to preserve the really important institutions that have evolved over time um, and that govern our world and make it work so well is to not give anyone the kind of power to change them all at once. Right. So like I can imagine, I have no idea if this person exists, but I can imagine being the sort of person that's like, these institutions are meaningful and lasting. And the way that we preserve them is to not let the government have anything to do with them at all. We need to severely restrict the size and scope and power of government to make sure that those institutions have more power than the government that oversees them. That person is endorsing libertarian political institutions, right? And so you've got right there, you've got like um, left liberals or just liberals, uh, anarchists and conservatives all endorsing political institutions. I think that ties back to your question about anarchism, because like it's kind of the same thing to me. There are a lot of different way reasons that you can endorse it. Um, anarchy has like one thing going for it which is that you don't actually have to agree on what the government looks like <laughs> because you, you've kind of like already agreed on that. So it, it may be that like if, if anarchy works, then it, it's got a much easier time dealing with all of these different groups than libertarianism generally, because um, 
people who believe in a very small government, whether it's a night watchman state, which is like police courts in the military. So protecting people from each other, enforcing contracts and protecting the country from foreign invaders. Um, and whether or not you want to include some sort of basic social safety net, which is a disagreement, uh, a, a major disagreement among libertarians. So you at least have to agree on what that looks like um, if you are going to agree on a state. And that causes rifts within libertarianism. But I think that it's not super useful to require us to agree what the state looks like in order to recognize that a very small state that recognizes individual liberty, uh, including economic liberty, um, the rule of law, and making sure people, like, I, I guess individual liberty and individual rights is a recognition of the equality of people, right? Um, there are a lot of ways that you can get to that, and I just don't think that it's super useful to torture ourselves trying to come with a, come up with a single definition. Right. That makes total sense. And I will agree with one thing you said entirely, just so, so I'm clear about what I was saying, too, is that um, like, you know, classical liberalism, the way we've been discussing it here and as a political system, the way most people know it is certainly not the same thing as like uh, anarchism or, or, or that there's an overlap, I think, in terms of some of the values that they base the systems on. But but that's a whole different story. And, and what I mean by that, what I mean by that is sort of this. Maybe this will help illustrate my point and you can tell me your thoughts on it, which is that there is a critique from, uh, I shouldn't say some, lots of angles uh, that people come from when they think about anarchy that, for instance, anarcho-capitalism one example, has it right that there shouldn't be a government, right? There we go. Um, but one of what they say and what their critique is that, unfortunately, with a lot of those folks, and this is where they distinguish themselves being based on more liberal values rather than anything else, um, which is that it doesn't stop when the government just goes away. If we are serious about power dynamics and serious about equality, we can't just say, well, now that we have economic freedom, everything's honky-dory. So they kind of distinguish themselves from what they say, sort of a broadly defined libertarian sort of anarcho-capitalist anarchy versus uh, an anarchism that is an offshoot of more of the liberal values that you saw in the Enlightenment. So now I know we're getting to the weeds here kind of thing, but that's sort of where I was going. I want to make it clear with listening. I'm not saying like, oh, if you're a classical liberal, you're an anarchist. Definitely not saying that. Oh, um, no, no. Right. You're I was not. more saying in some people's view, there's more of an overlap between those th those two schools than other things you see under the libertarian umbrella, if you will. Sure. And, and that's just a question of matters of fact. Right. So we don't know what an anarchist society would look like. And if we did, we could have strong, or at least if I did, I could have stronger opinions on it. Um, and so it's just, it's a fundamental disagreement among anarchists of what sorts of institutions will take the place of the government uh, in the absence of the government. And you do have to have those arguments because if you don't have the government, you need society to like figure that stuff out, right? Um, but I, I, I don't have... Um, I, I sometimes make a joke that like my level of anarchism goes up and down with like coverage of police shootings uh, or like war coverage. Um, and, and that's, that's true. There are days when I'm just like, no, nothing can be worth this. Um, but that's, it's kind of like, I, I'm thoroughly agnostic on, on what that would look like. Um, and I think that it's super interesting the ways that people justify uh, their their political beliefs, which is why this is a fun podcast for me to do. Um, but I I don't think I have anything useful to add on. I think you're right that there are definitely both that both kinds of anarchism, um, and they're both probably complementary to, if not 
under the libertarian umbrella. Um, but it's it's not something that I think I I can't think of a good reason that I would disqualify like short of something like I said earlier, where you don't want a government because you want to have slavery. Right, right, exactly. Okay, that makes sense. And and we, we went right into the weeds there, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that in a bad way. I'm going to bring us back up to the top level where we talked about classical liberals and libertarians again. What we didn't answer so far is how they reconcile with each other. I'll just throw some things out there. Are they overlapping, uh, you know, things? Are is, is one sort of over the other? So you classical liberalism fits under the umbrella of what we can broadly call libertarianism. As we move forward in this conversation, in your mind, what should our listener keep in mind as, as the place you're coming from and how those two categories reconcile with each other? Yeah, no, that's a really important question, right? And uh, I think you said that uh, classical liberalism is like under the umbrella of libertarianism. And that's that's one thing that people say. The other thing is that libertarianism is under the umbrella of classical liberalism, that like classical liberalism is this belief in a limited government. um, And that includes concern for economic liberty, which puts it aside from modern left liberalism. I don't know how fair that is, but let's just take that off the table. <laughs> That's another podcast. Anyways, um, so it, it could be one under the other. I don't think either of those are right, because if we were to sit here and toss ideas back at each other, we're going to find things that make it look like it can't be under the umbrella. One can't be the umbrella of the right, other. Right, right. Um, I think it's got to be just overlap. It's like a lot of Venn diagrams, right? It's a lot of overlapping things. And you've got some people who, if if I were to take you, Alex, and we go through a questionnaire that establishes, um, are you a liberal? Are you a libertarian? And like 80% of the questions or like, I don't know, don't be offended by the number I choose. 80% of the questions <laughs> uh, say that you're definitely, you fall within not just, not just liberalism, but classical liberalism. Um, and 20% are other things. We're just for the sake of this conversation, we're going to say that you're a classical liberal, um, even though you as an individual, right, you're your own bubble uh, in the diagram of overlapping things, uh, which is all that it is, right? It, it's so weird that we try to talk about liberalism or libertarianism or anything as its own bubble because it's always a bunch of people, right? It's a bunch of people and a bunch of beliefs and none of them are the same. So like you can have bigger or smaller disagreements, but what you're talking about is the beliefs of people and the things in their heads and their hearts. Um, And so like, we're going to take you and there's this broad group that's classical liberals and you're going to be partly in it. And some people are really firmly in it, right? I don't want to say that there's nobody who is like the purest of the pure. Those people are out there and sometimes hard to have a long conversation with, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> which is not even necessarily their fault. The world is a lot simpler if you're very sure of everything, right? Um, and for somebody who's not very sure of everything, you're going to get into like questions that you find interesting that somebody who thinks they figured it out are just not going to find interesting. And that's right. true whether we're talking about like economic policy, if, I, if we were talking about like free trade, Something that is like a basic agreed upon truth that to economists about free trade is not going to be super interesting for me to spend a lot of time on, even if to you, you're like, it doesn't make any sense. I'm going to get bored. And that's that's all it is, right? So the levels of disagreement that we experience and stuff like that just comes from the things that we can really take for granted and really find obvious versus the things that we find interesting to talk about, right? And um, 
I, I just can't see it as an umbrella. It's such a weird way to, it, it's how I used to think about it. I used to think like, okay, so there's liberals and then under liberals, there's classical liberals and then, and classical liberals have a more restricted idea of government than liberals. That This is how I used to do it. And then under classical liberals, um, because there's this, there's this like kind of probably still prevailing idea that classical liberals are like libertarians, but a bit less. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've heard that idea before too. Yeah. So they're like libertarians, but they're not so hardcore. And if you've got that idea in your head, then you've got like liberals, and then under the liberals, you've got a smaller group, which is the classical liberals, and then you've got the people who are more restrictive on the state, and those are the libertarians. And it's all very neat and tidy, except it's not. Exactly. Um, to yeah. me, anyways, no, which I is why which is why this is an interesting conversation. Right. And you know what? I actually think that's an excellent place to take our break. So let's just do that right now. Everyone, you're listening to the Curious Task. I'm speaking with Janet Bufton today. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send us questions and feedback to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. A special thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Andy Crooks, Bryce Tingle, and Christopher McDonald. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to The Curious Task. I'm speaking with Janet Bufton today. So Janet, in the first half, we, we covered a lot and there's a lot to drill down into. And again, we could go so many ways with this. So I'm just going to, I know people listening to will probably think, you should take it that way, you should take it this way, but I'm going to do my best to take it where I think will be the most interesting. Um, but I, but I just to tie off that first half, I want to say that, you know, one example of, of uh, a figure who sort of themselves uh, went uh, between overlapping circles as they were labeling themselves. And again, I'm just trying to tie off that first question there about all these overlapping circles was, was actually like Milton Friedman. So like at, at some point at the beginning and the beginning, uh, he, he's, he lived a long time. So let's say the 40s, 50s, he, he was often, uh, you could find him actually describing himself somewhat as a neoliberal or other people describing him that way. And that, that took on a different meaning later different podcasts. We're not going there. We have an episode on that already. Um, a really excellent episode. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And uh, and then he also would later on say, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a liberal without adjectives, actually. Uh, and I can prove that. Go check out the Donahue stuff. He said, I'm a liberal. I believe in freedom. That's what I'm here to do. He has said classical liberal. And then at the end, uh, towards the end of his life, actually, I saw a bunch of clips from the 90s and things. There's a couple of Hoover Institution recordings where he said, like, look, there's kind of two kinds of libertarians. There's consequentialist and, and natural rights. I'm kind of like a consequentialist libertarian. I don't want to do an analysis on Milton Friedman, but I'm just saying that gives a lot of credence to what you were saying about these overlapping circles. He was not a, a stupid man who would uh, throw these labels around, but he still found himself kind of jockeying between different labels, depending on what maybe what he thought or what other people were doing. So but I thought that was quite interesting. I thought of that as I was listening to you say that. Yeah, I think I think that um, if you're somebody who's like really interested in the truth, uh, you're going to be st stuck. I I I, as I say this, I realize this is very a self-serving belief to have. But if you're someone who's really interested in the truth, you're going to be really interested in what these labels mean. Because you're going to be trying to get exactly the right words to describe the things you believe in and to describe things that are good and true. Um, and I think that I think that I know that Friedman has his um, what's the opposite of a fan? <laughs> uh, like detractor critics yeah pe people do not there are a lot of people who do not like friedman but um everyone i know whoever interacted with him he was a uh from what i understand a really sweet guy who was just really interested 
in uh, understanding the world. And so it doesn't surprise me to hear you say that at all. And uh, actually, that provides a great segue into the next question and gear I wanted to shift into with you. So, you know, there, there's a lot of people who call themselves libertarians that um, that are kind of seem to be in, engaged with the battle for the, the soul of the word, if you will. And I have seen people and I'm not I'm telling everyone who's listening, I'm not making this up. I don't want to, you know, take people out of context and think that, but I've seen them very clearly state that no, that's not what libertarianism, here's what it is. And and they don't talk about something broad. They say, oh, it's like classical liberalism with these modifiers. Or they say, no, 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 no. Uh libertarian really really sort of is. And then this is where you sort of get that paleoconservative angle that maybe we could talk about too. These people are seem to be engaged for the in a battle for the heart and soul of what this word means. And really what that kind of ties into is a question I, I, I want to throw at you to hear your thoughts on, which is that it, it seems that the the definition of libertarian itself has changed over time. I'm not sure if you were interested in, in tracing some of that history. You've been in the movement a, a long time as well. Like I'm not sure if you want to share some of your observations on that, but but it seems that if there is two competing factions in libertarianism, it does seem to ultimately come down to people who are interested in that more broad definition and other people who are more interested in, say, the the uh, where paleoconservatism or conservatism meets libertarianism or what they think it is, at least. I, I might be talking nonsense here, but I'm just trying to throw it to you for some of your thoughts to extend on that, maybe. Yeah, no, I don't I don't think it's nonsense. You're you're absolutely right. Um, I, I was cut. I was kind of trying to decide if if the definition of libertarianism has changed. So what the movement looks like has certainly changed over time, uh, at least in. So I'm going to kind of stick to um, Canada and the United States, um, which I I just happen to know better because I'm from here. Um, And there may be a totally different and like the post-war Europe environment is going to have and not just the post-war but the experience of having the soviet bloc right there like it's going to just everything will be very different in europe than it is here um but what the movement looks like has certainly changed and this is sort this is why i like the um the definition that peter gave me uh because it's able to deal with that, right? Like, so when you said somebody who had evolved over time, I was a hundred percent sure you were going to say Murray Rothbard, because if you want to look at the history of like 20th century libertarianism in North America, it's, you trace it with Murray Rothbard. So Murray Rothbard, um, has fans and people who don't like him. And this, it will become a little bit more clear why, if you don't know this, sorry, if you do, um, if you do know all of this, you might be upset with me for leaving things out. But Murray Rothbard basically starts out super anti-war. And if you meet libertarians, so you said I've been around for a long time. And that's funny because like I meet people who are like, oh, you're a young pup. And now I meet people and I'm like, oh, you're a young pup. <laughs> I, I'm, a little, I'm a little younger than you. So I'm just sort of projecting, right. I guess, my no, point no, of no. view. And, totally right. and, I, and I have been doing this for a long time, right? I was, I was young uh, when we started the Institute for Liberal Studies because these ideas were already very important to me. Um, but to be but, but to be clear to everyone listening, yeah, like Janet and I weren't sitting around with with like, you know, Milton Friedman and Rothbard back in the 70s. That's not how old we are. Just so we can no, get that no. out of the way. And, and the people who were sitting around with Mar- Rothbard are the ones who say to me, because Rothbard's not not that old. He's not ancient history. Um, the, the ones who used to like when the libertarian movement could all fit in Murray Rothbard's living room and they know that because it did. Like those people are the ones who, who say to me, oh, you're a young pup. Right. Um, but if you meet people from that era... Um, they're, they're really cool because the thing that motivates them is opposition to war in a way that is like so passionate and moving and like 
I guess this might not resonate with you if you're more of a foreign policy hawk, but to me, it's just so noble because what they care about is suffering and death and not being somebody who makes that happen. And so Rothbard was like part of like the weatherman. I think he knew the the weatherman. I have reason to think that. Um, I don't have any reason I don't think to think that Rothbard bombed anyone but like (laughs) uh, they they were like a radical movement that was going to like bring down the government because of the war right like it was extreme opposition to the Vietnam War coming out of World War II um, and seeing the like horrors of what that does to the world right and so they were like we need to stop the government because the government is killing people and they're in our name and that is unjust and something that needs to end. And so it's this like awesome, passionate, um, it is like a Voltaire Declare, right? When, when you read Voltaire Declare, if you read anarchists, um, now, if you read like libertarian anarcho-capitalist anarchists, it's all very analytic. And if you read somebody like Voltaire Declare, it's like, I feel that this is wrong. And so like to me in my head, when I think of that generation of libertarianism, they felt that it was wrong and they were so passionate about it that they were like, we've got to shrink the government to like nothing if we can, because what the government does is napalm children in (laughs) Vietnam. Right. So, um, and that's how Rothbard started out. And then as the movement goes on, he's like really shifting between, he, it doesn't work. Right. He's like the anti-war movement will, will end the big government. Uh, and it didn't work. So he like moves himself around a bunch. Uh, and I'm going to get it wrong if I try to do every single step by the eighties. And also nobody, not enough, not nobody, not enough people care. But by the 80s, Rothbard is like, no, the left, the hippies, they are like making things so disorderly and the uh, not workable, basically, that what the way that we're going to get this to work is we're going to ally ourselves with people who have like strongly held social conservative values. Um, I'm not going to try to justify this because I think that that's wrong. I'm just going to say that so that nobody has to speculate about why. Uh, And I'm not going to try to make the case for it because it would be unfair to the people who really believe in it. But that's what Rothbard thinks. So Rothbard and a guy named Lou Rockwell um, start the paleoconservative strategy. And this is if you've ever heard people get really upset about Ron Paul. Ron Paul is involved because he's got these newsletters that probably Rothbard and Rockwell are writing, but nobody really knows. And they have like awful, racist, homophobic just really distasteful things. Uh, I don't actually recommend reading them unless you really want to ruin your day. Uh, <laughs> they, are, they are worse than you probably think. Um, and this is how they thought they would motivate people. They were like, we will get a bunch of people who have like a shared idea of what um, a country should be, like a free country should be. And these people together are all going to like share this endeavor and they're going to move forward and they're going to shrink the government down to like nothing. And we're not going to be forced to associate with people who don't share our political convictions and stuff like that. And this is reinforced by the fact that the Cold War is going on. Um, and so prior to uh, the advent of basically socialism, like, so the First World War had super quick lesson. The First World War happens and everybody is like, wow, the government can actually control a lot more stuff than we thought it could. Because when you're in a situation of total world war, the governments will take control of all everything in the economy uh, as a matter of self-preservation and people will in- endorse it, right? Because if you really think that, I don't know, the Germans are coming, um, probably wouldn't be the Germans now. So let's go with that. The Germans are coming. <laughs> <laughs> 
not upset anyone. Um, they're not anymore. The Germans are lovely. They have schnitzel. Um, and, and if they come, then we're going to lose our way of life. We're going to lose, we're not going to be able to teach our children the language that we want to teach them. Never mind that there are people in Canada who weren't allowed to teach their children the language they want to teach them. Let's just set that aside. But like, if you've got this existential threat, then the government can take control of everybody because what everybody is doing is a shared endeavor, right? And so you can, you don't need to coordinate the differing wants and needs and plans and hopes and desires of people in society if they're all the same. And so liberalism went from opposing conservatism, which wanted to keep things the way that they were and uh, hold on to established power structures and um, political control and things like uh, expanding the franchise uh, to non-white people and to women, etc. That used to be who liberals were opposed to, but then socialism emerges as a real political project. Um, and it is entirely opposed to liberalism because liberalism is only meaning, the, only, the idea of people being equal is only meaningful if people are also different, right? Like it doesn't matter if pe people are equal if we're all the same. Um, and so socialism, whether or not you like some modified version of it now is deeply liberal because you need to have a single societal vision of what things are gonna be. And at least in practice, that's, as, that's another podcast episode, but at least in practice, what it looked like was the government telling you what you were going to produce, what you were going to consume, how you were going to live your life, because the, the aim was to overcome scarcity, right? The idea was, if you just follow all of these rules, then we, were over, we will overcome the constraints on life that make it so that you don't have complete freedom now because of things like material want. That was the dream. Um, but in practice, trying to achieve that was extremely oppressive and could not treat people as equals. Mm -hmm. And so liber liberalism, including libertarianism, found itself opposed to this, right? Um, because of this lack of respect for individual rights and the huge, huge government that it requires, right? Um, but sort of ironically to me, Rothbard's strategy is to just come up with a group of people who have a shared endeavor, people that are the same, right? People amongst whom it doesn't matter that much if they're equal. And he's like, if we can just enforce this as what society is, then we will be able to realize the libertarian dream of very small to no government and things being done voluntarily between individuals. And so that changes what the movement looks like, right? And then the end of the Cold War in the 90s has a huge impact, right? Because all of a sudden you don't have the, so I guess China's still there, but at the time China was not an economic powerhouse, right? They were, if you can look up pictures of um, Shanghai from 1989 and today it's like bonkers, right? And so nobody was wor that worried about China at the time. Um, the Soviet or the socialist threat sort of disappeared. And so the whole landscape started to shift, right? Because you don't have this common uh, enemy that had animated what's normally called political fusionism, which is the alliance between libertarians, classical liberals, and conservatives, people who see value in economic freedom. Um, so that gets you to the dawn of the 21st century. Uh, and then you've got the stuff that I actually lived through. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was alive in the, like, 
I was, I should be able to remember the fall of the Berlin Wall, but I, I don't really, I don't think I recognize the, uh, the significance of what was happening. Um, but uh, you get to the 21st century and like, so I remember, I, I should say, I remember the 90s and it's just so sad, like, the, line, the 90s have a lot to answer for, right? In more ways than one, they do, yes. I don't want to get into the fashion or anything but like that, but it was the closest thing to world peace that I think I'll ever see, right? The Cold War was over. There was just this like incredible optimism. And then the 21st century is basically defined by September 11th, uh, at least the, the beginning of the 21st century, right? And you see this huge... Um, increase in concern about things like security and spying and uh, terrorism. And that really becomes the new thing that shapes what the state, at least, or the government, I should say the government, the state is a confusing thing to say when you're a Canadian. Um, because when you're next to a bunch of literal states, anyways, um, <laughs> that what the government is concerned about is, is terrorism, and that changes the things that we're worried about. And so you've got this... Uh, and also war, right? The, the concern about war is back. And so everything I said about Ron Paul earlier was true, but Ron Paul emerges as this figure in a Republican, unfortunately, in my opinion, <laughs> presidential race. And he basically says, look, it's possible for you to be anti-war. So this strain of anti-war is pretty consistent, actually, in the libertarian movement. Um, you can be anti-war, but still care about economic freedoms. Right. Um, and that inspired a lot of especially young people um, to get involved. And you've got movements like Students for Liberty, which is still like a huge thing, um, although it's it's grown to like a global thing and not a North American thing um, and and stuff like that. And so the the players changed a lot because that was a lot of new people and young people who have different concerns. Right. Than a very small group of older people who have been like really in the weeds on the philosophy of this stuff forever. Yeah. For, for me, for instance, like I'm, this is an episode about me, but I'll just quickly say that, like, that's part of the truck I rolled in on. Actually, that's a whole that's a very long story. But but that is exactly accurate for, for what for what initially is the tip of the iceberg for people's libertarian journey. Uh, in my age group, give or take a couple of years, he was a big part oh, yeah. of it. Someday there will be the podcast of libertarian origin stories, but this is not that podcast. Not yet, not yet. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's like a good illustration of how the movement has changed over time and why I don't think you can say that there's a specific, like, I don't think that even, even if what we said is it's a night watchman state and we're just like, the end, libertarianism is night watchman state. What is that night watchman state trying to accomplish, right? That's very different in 1970 than it is in 2010 than it is in 1995, right? Like it's it's really I just don't think that it's a reasonable thing to to say because you do you can't just say like what the parts of the government that are allowed like what they do, the, the scope of what they govern is important, right? And I was actually going to say one of the interesting things that you, you said in, in all that, which I think that's all great info and it really paints the picture of how this stuff happened over time, was uh, was was this word fusionism. We could, I just think we could spend at least another minute on that, which is that uh, on top of everything you just said that's happening in the libertarian movement, there's also people with the idea, whether the, whether they come to this idea from the 
point of view that it's necessary or they come from the point of view that it's a good idea. Uh, nevertheless, there's a group of people that think like, no, no, this is the way forward to navigate this sort of, you know, 60s to 1990s Cold War era, if, if you will. Um, you know, what we need is uh, people, classical liberals, libertarians broadly defined, fusing, politically speaking, with people who would be broadly defined as conservatives. And that's sort of our block of people who, generally speaking, they claim believe in things like markets, uh, civil rights, all, all that great stuff that a classical liberal might say they like. The idea is that this fusionism was supposed to, broadly speaking, represent all of that. In, in retrospect, what do you think about that? I want to be clear here now, I'm not talking about the subcategory of libertarians and liberals. I'm talking about this idea where you have that lowercase c conservatism fusing with those other folks we've just been spending time on. Yeah. The, so the idea was that uh, libertarians and conservatives are natural political allies. So we don't agree, um, but we have a common enemy. And so we should work together to make sure that our version, our compatible version of society is the one that is furthered. Um, and this really takes off under Reagan, right? Because Reagan, uh, reads the Freeman, which was the magazine of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he listened to people like Friedman, um, and he at least talked the talk. Uh, not an anti-war president. No, you can ask the South Americans about that as well. Uh, right, exactly, right, and so or and look at look at military spending under Reagan. Right, you've got these real social like real social problems that are really difficult to solve. There are at least problems where there's a plausible argument that the government should be involved, like the AIDS crisis. And there's not money. Uh, this is the story: is there's not money to deal with them, which might be like might be true, right? Maybe the government should be so small that there's not money to deal with something like the AIDS crisis. You can have that argument if you want, but if there's not money to deal with the AIDS crisis, then surely you shouldn't be increasing the military budget. This is just me having a rant, sorry. But anyways, it really takes off under Reagan. Um, and I think that the main thing that had to be true for fusionism to last is you kind of said, oh, you care about civil rights, you care about this, you care about that. I don't actually think that's what made fusionism work. What made fusionism work was agreeing on economics as the thing that we wanted to worry about, right? So agreeing on things like tax rates and regulation uh, and like what the government does for us in our lives. Um, right. That's the thing that we can agree on, right? So conservatives and libertarians don't agree like on things like the war on drugs. Another thing that Reagan, not awesome, right? So like this is like the weight around the neck, I think, of the libertarian movement now, I, I don't even know if I want to say it. If it's a, so, okay, this is the weight around the neck of classical liberalism today, because classical liberals will tend to see themselves as coming out of at least like having some history in this fusionist movement. And so what happens is people are like obsessed with it. And I used to be like this. So I, I, I'm trying, I am understanding, but like just obsessed with the tax rate, right? Like you can't tax people at a rate this high. And it I'm not going to, the, the joke is taxation is theft, ha ha ha. But like, um, I mean, so the, the thing is at some point, the government is taking everything that you, that you earn, right? And we 
we all agree that that's bad, right? That's kind of the, <laughs> that's kind of the basis of fusionism. Right. Fair <laughs> enough. Like, yeah. We can all get behind not 100% taxation. And perhaps um, I was, I was overstating the case before it and projecting a bit of my um, flippancy about this, because I, I guess what was sort of underneath what I was saying there is not that I really think that people had agreements on all this stuff. It's more that it seems to me that, and I think this is where you're going, but correct me if I'm wrong, that now this is these are the kind of things that some people either put to the side or sort of tacitly assumed people were more on the same page about and now are discovering that perhaps that's not the case. Things like a, the form of individualism that they might a classical liberal might have in their mind versus a conservative, let's say, or or the thoughts on civil rights, the war on drugs, etc. So I, I totally agree with you, by the way, that this was definitely not stuff that you put all these fused folks in a room and they said, yeah, yeah, thumbs up to all this. But like I said, I, I think underneath what I was saying, there's sort of this idea that some people may have overseen stated the case for how much fusionism agreed upon, uh, perhaps, that, or at least they're dealing with that now. And I think that's where you were going with that. Yeah. So so I started uh, when I was first politically involved, I was politically involved with conservative movements in Canada. Um, but I, I do, and I don't know, I don't know what I believed when I was 18. Who knows what they believed when they were 18. But I was like, I was really animated by these economic things, right? Um, but as I started caring about other stuff, I started to wonder as someone who is embedded in this fusionist movement. So like I had started to think of myself as a libertarian, but I was still working in conservative politics. And at some point you just have to ask yourself. So like libertarians are were under the fusionist project or are, I don't know, is it still happening? Doesn't matter. Uh, but libertarians are asked to make a lot of sacrifices, right? Don't worry about the war on drugs. Don't worry about same-sex marriage in the 90s, right? Like that's that's just not something we have to fight about. We need to focus on our like common cause. So what was the thing that conservatives didn't worry about in the fusionist movement? This was my this is my from my perspective, the sort of libertarian that I was was making at least after the Cold War. So I can't speak for people who were part of the fusionist movement or fusion, whatever it was during the Cold War. But to me, all of the sacrifices were coming from the libertarian point of view. And to me, that means that you're not a natural political ally, right? Unless all you care about is the economic stuff. And so I do think that um, to the extent that classical liberalism is also a political sort of movement or alliance, its big thing that it has to overcome is this historical emphasis on economics over other things. And I, you, I think, uh, so I know that you had Steve Davies on to talk about the pandemic uh, in the spring of 2020. Um, and he mentioned a little bit his idea of this political shift that's happening around the world. And he kind of says that the things that used to be up for debate were economics and like certain sorts of personal freedom. And as the 20th century went on, we sort of settled the personal freedom. We're like, we're, we're cool with people making at least a lot of their own decisions about who to love and what to do with themselves and things like that. Um, and so we were fighting over economics. That was the big fight. But now we're kind of entering a world where the economics is sort of, sort of set, right? Like we basically agree on markets. We just disagree on how much to regulate them. Right. And that's that's a much bigger agreement than we had in the middle of the 20th century. Um, and so I think that what's becoming really obvious as the old political lines shift with things like Trumpism, where like Trump's not I think I don't think there's a working definition of conservative that includes Donald Trump other than like conservatism as just the right wing. Um, 
but right. But cons- but Donald Trump is not in favor of economic liberty, right? He thinks that the economic decisions and laws that we make should serve like the group, or at least that's what he says. Who knows what he believes? Um, and then you've got other people who are just interested in like not not focusing on that group. And that's just not something that uh, the fusionist movement, at least, was set up to be able to deal with. It's it's why you get people who you talk about the fact that they're like not quite white nationalist, but like white nationalist adjacent or people who don't actually care if someone's white nationalist. And you're like, I don't, I'm not cool with this. And they're like, so what? You want socialism? And it's like, what? How does that? How does that follow? But it, it's because of this old set of political problems that we've become mm-hmm. accustomed to facing together. Right. Um, have just sh- shaded everything. And part of the reason that everything is so frustrating right now is because we're figuring it out. Um, progress is messy. We're and living bumpy. it right now. That's what I think right, a lot of exactly. people, a lot of people trying to do this in retrospect, have that sometimes problem wrapping their head around the fact that we are living the Wikipedia page. So. It's time to take some opinions and really look at what's going on now. And this is why we're having this conversation, right? Because what's happened in all of this is who counts as a libertarian comes up for debate, right? Because are you really a libertarian if you can just be like, I don't actually care that much about the top marginal tax rate? Um, It's just not the thing that I'm really worried about. Does that mean that you're does that mean you can't be a libertarian? Um, and we sort of talked about, so we talked about Rothbard and uh, Lou Rockwell in the 80s and 90s and the paleo-libertarian movement. And what I found really interesting and the reason that I like the question for this episode is that I remember, right, like my early experience as a libertarian was people who were like the non-aggression principle and like extreme minarchism are libertarianism. And if you don't have like that as your basis for what you believe, then you don't count as a libertarian. Right, right. And then you had uh, this group of like, this wouldn't have been the language I don't think you would have used at the time, although maybe, but like more cosmopolitan libertarians um, or more uh, the paleo-libertarian would have said like establishment libertarians were kind of like, I don't think that's right because I don't believe in the non-aggression principle, but I still consider myself a libertarian. And so you've got these like sort of purity tests. And what's been really interesting to me since 2016 is the groups that are doing those purity tests have flipped, right? So instead of the paleo-libertarian hardcore I don't want to say natural rights because there are natural rights libertarians who don't think that this shared con- like socially conservative um, coherent idea of what a country should be are there are rights based thinkers who don't think that um, but like they, they see themselves as like the natural rights pure libertarians and now the more like cosmopolitan um, whatever else they are libertarians are like ooh you guys don't count. Um, because you don't believe in things like cosmopolitanism and globalism and immigration and free trade. And so they're like, you don't get to count because your policy prescriptions are are wrong and the reasons that you believe them are wrong. Like if you don't care about racism, you can't be a libertarian. Right. I'm actually point. happy you brought that up, too, because we mentioned before, you know, you have some people from that more, let's say, paleo-libertarian, paleo-conservative angle that are saying, if you don't care about this, this and this about the state or this, this and this tax, are you really libertarian? And, and they're pointing a finger one way. But, but you know, to be fair, I can think of 
you know, numerous people right now, even some key figures in what you could call the libertarian movement that are doing the exact same thing back the other way down the road. They're basically saying, I don't know what you're talking about, but if you don't accept this, this, and this about whatever cosmopolitanism or whatever they're saying about something about social justice, they're like, you can't be libertarian. So so that is happening both ways right now. Yeah. And it's a fundamental disagreement too, yes. right? Because on the one hand, you've got people who are like, if you don't care about racism, you can't be a libertarian. But on the other side, they're like, if you're obsessed with racism, you can't be a libertarian. Like, that's like, there's no bridging that gap, right? And so, the 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 question to me of whether or not liber so the 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 like camp, if there are camps, I don't know, but like, probably if you're not in it, they'll say you're in the other camp. But like, <laughs> but the the camp to the extent that they exist that I'm in are of the people who say that libertarians have to be liberal. Um, and so this is my like point of view is not super uh, popular among a lot of people that I really like and respect and are very smart. And I disagree with them only hesitantly um, <laughs> uh, with great trepidation. But like, I don't I just don't think that you get to throw everyone out. And it, it was really crazy to me because before 2016, we were all on board with Peter Jaworski's definition that we talked about in the first half of the podcast. And it's like, look, it's just the political institutions. It doesn't matter if you're like the non-aggression principle is the beginning and the end of political morality. That doesn't matter. All that matters is that you care about the institutions. And 2016 happens and you've got these people who are saying they're libertarians, but they want a really small government because they don't want forced integration with other with immigrants, right? They want to be able to choose to live in these communities where they feel like they belong. And they and the, the in their mind, the government bringing in immigrants, whether they're refugees or whether it's like through expanding visa programs, and then saying that they're allowed to like buy property or whatever. This is another point of view that I understand, but do not hold. And so I will not try to represent it because it would be unfair to people with whom I strongly disagree, but think deserve their own uh, arguments. Um, but like, that's a, that's a point of view. And if you think that the government has to be super small, because what you believe the government does is bring in immigrants, you might be wrong Right. I think you're wrong, because I think if the government got out of the way, more people would come. Um, and I don't think that I get to have a right over who my neighbor sells their house to or who like somebody that I buy a falafel from decides to marry. Like those aren't any of my business. <laughs> right. Right. Um, it doesn't matter to me if they're from Canada. And so I, I like even if it did, though, I don't have a property right in my neighbor's house. I don't get to make decisions on behalf of the person who makes my sandwiches. It, it turns out even even if there was an agreement at one point that some of these things could be shelved and we can all have our happy times about economics and things like that, whether people like it or not, the social questions and the things you've just been listening are coming back into play, I guess, is ultimately the point. Whether Again, whether it's right or wrong under that libertarian label, the fact is it's happening. Well, not only that, but whether whether you're right or wrong about what would happen if you got the political institutions that you want, right? So there are people who believe in a similar set of... Um, similar set of policy institutions to ones that I would at least think about endorsing, like very small. Uh, I think that society um, just quickly so that uh, I think society is really a lot better at solving problems than we give it a chance to be. Um, I think that people that one of you mentioned that I really like the work of Eleanor Ostrom and part of what I think is so inspiring about what she, what she did is 
she was kind of the the world told her that you need the government to solve things or you need private property and like only individual contracts. And what she did is look at the world and be like, that's not how people are at all. People solve all kinds of problems collectively. And so I think that we could have the government at least doing a lot less. Um, and then, and I also think that there are problems with having the government do things because of things like force and power that create new problems when you try to solve them using the government. And so to me, I would be willing to endorse a much smaller government than we have now that took on a lot fewer responsibilities or at least downloaded them to a more localized governance structure. Um, and so I might agree with someone who says the federal government should be 90%. I don't actually know if I believe this, but the federal government should be like 90 or 95% smaller. I might be like, okay, but they're like, because then we wouldn't have to deal with the immigrants. And I'm like, that's not why I believe that. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but, but like, for all I know, they're right. I strongly suspect that they're wrong. I were, I betting I would take like anyways, but like, <laughs> I really think they're wrong. But if they're right, then like, are they not, but does what everything that it means to be a libertarian change because their night watchman state would result in fewer immigrants? Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not confident enough to say that those people are not libertarians, but I'm, I'm very sure those people aren't liberals <laughs> because they're not willing to let my neighbor decide to whom they can sell their house. They're saying that that's a, that's a social decision that needs to be made by the government and not something that your dispersed power that you have because of the property that you hold. That's not a, an appropriate power for you to have. And also that decision, that's not a decision that you get to make because society has an overarching goal that, and you must be subsumed beneath it, right? Um, right. The, the person who makes my sandwiches has to find somebody in Canada to fall in love with, or the person that they fall in love with is going to have to meet the right criteria. If they're super sick, they can't come here, right? Because it would be very expensive for the government to take on their medical care. These sorts of things, I like, I, I agree that those are things that cause challenges for the government as it exists now. But to me, that's a problem with the government, not a problem with the people. Um, because the, the government as it exists now interferes with our ability to be treated as dignified, equal individuals, even though we're different. Um, and that's not, I don't think, the motivating factor behind somebody who wants the government to be much, much smaller so that they can be around people who they can respect as individuals because they're the same. I, I actually think what you just said there ties up a lot of the conversation we've had so far nicely. Um, you know, that distinction between those people might believe in that kind of libertarian institution, but doesn't sound like they're they're very liberal. So I think that actually ties a nice bow on a lot of what we talked about. I, I'm going to move us ahead to to one more thing here before we head to the fo formal wrap up because our time is pretty well wound down here. But so at the end of the day, I want to ask you, what do you think people who call themselves classical liberals should be doing from the perspective where the intellectual rubber hits the road when it comes to political activity. Like we've had the conversation about what these things mean and, and how they reconcile themselves in terms of like what people believe in, in terms of institution and policy. 
but but you know for instance is it useful for people who say they are classical liberal for whatever reason to continue associating with the libertarian movement but be clear about distinctions should they be happy to just be thrown into that label this is a lot of your your personal opinion and thoughts but again i think that'd be a good place to end the main thrust of our conversation here is is to ultimately you have to do something if you identify as a classical liberal so what would that be politically speaking? Yeah, no, and and, and I think that that's a, a useful question to ask. Um, I will say that, like, I have my own things that I that I wish class, classical liberalism as a political movement has all of the same challenges that we just talked about with libertarianism, um, because uh, there are conservatives who feel disowned uh, by the quote conservative movement um, because of things like Trumpism. Um, they don't feel like they have a home. They want smaller government. They want free trade. Uh, and so they say, well, I'm a classical liberal, but they don't have this. They're, they're really more conservatives. Right. And that's 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 fine. Um, so but I, I want to talk about liberalism in terms of the political philosophy and not the movement. I just want to be clear about that because I do. I think that it gets muddy again. Right. Um, so if you if you're really like a liberal um of the sort who thinks that uh market forces are an important part of a uh great society and by great i mean big and and disperse i'm using it uh in the way that certain thinkers use it not like a great society is a liberal society but uh i mean i also think that but that's that's just me um but what what i would like for people who are really liberals to do um is to try and shed that preoccupation with economics like we have to care right it matters a lot that an indigenous person can start a business and know that the government's not going to come in and say oh well you don't you like sort of have this land but not really um we get to decide whether a pipeline goes through here Right. Like they should have secure property rights and the ability to make decisions about their land that should be as protected as the richest, most politically connected person in this country. Right. I don't think that we should set aside concern about economic liberties because those economic liberties are the things they're like the last thing that holds back political power. They're, they're the other thing. So I do think we have to care about it, but we can't continue to care about it at the expense of everything else. Because look, we won the war on markets. Nobody is trying to totally centrally plan an economy. They're trying to tweak it, right? And so you can worry about how it's tweaked. But what I would really like is for us to care about that individual like significance of people and like think about the way that people can be harmed or can live their life in fear because of the power that they have to face. Um, that should be a real concern for liberals and that should be an animated, I would really like for that to be a large, a larger part of the coalition of people who work together for smaller government that I'm calling libertarianism. Um, and I, I think that we also need to accept that libertarianism is not a single political project. 
Um, we need to just drop that idea that if we criticize other people who count as libertarians, we're just infighting and shooting ourselves in the foot because there are a bunch of people who want very small government who are pursuing goals, political goals that I don't agree with. Um, and it's not shooting myself in the foot to oppose those goals, right? Because we're not a big blob. Like this goes back to what we said earlier. We're not a big blob of something called libertarian. We're people. <laughs> We're individual people that matter and have our own goals and have our own values. Um, and I know that not everybody has like a coherent political philosophy um, and not everybody has like a, most people don't have a set of policy prescriptions that they are like willing to go to the wall for, but we should like, it's okay to have inclinations and things that you think that matter and to form political coalitions about those things. And it doesn't matter always, the only thing that matters is not the size of the government. <laughs> That's what I would really like for people who are liberal, classical or otherwise, um, but especially classically liberal, because these are the people who have historically worried more about the size and scope of the government. It's not the only thing that matters, right? You, it, it's a means to an end. It's not the end itself. That, make, that makes perfect sense. And my two cents I'll throw in there is not to say that people who aren't concerned about that aren't classical liberals. We're not litmus testing here. But I said, you, you're going to have a harder time in that tradition if, if you're not even at least concerned a little bit about it is my takeaway. So I think that's that's an excellent point and an excellent practical su suggestion for what, what people should be concerned about. I, I'm going to move ahead to our formal wrap up here. Our time's definitely wound down now. We did have a great conversation. There's lots of great ideas there. And and as everyone who listens knows that we do the same formal wrap up each time, perhaps with this question, it might be one of the most unfair times to do it, but I'm going to do it. Nevertheless, we're going to see if we can. Uh, Janet, uh, you get the last word as always on the curious task. The guest always does. Let me say to you, we've talked about a lot. Let's try if we can to bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on everything we talked about. Let me officially ask you, what do you hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether libertarians are liberal? If there's one or two takeaways that you want people to, to leave with, what would those be? I actually think it's, it's a useful exercise. Um, the first thing that I would say is what I hope that people will do is think of themselves less as a group. And to the extent that they think of themselves as working within a group rather than as like members of a group that need to protect that group, try to think about what your goals really are. Because we focus a lot on what the government looks like. Um, and I think we should focus on what we, what, what we want the society governed by that government to accomplish. Um, and that might be a better way of trying to figure out where you sit. You can still call yourself a libertarian if that's the, the word that feels good when you say it. Like you're like, yeah, that's, that's what I believe. And you can still want a really small government. And maybe you're even someone who's like, look, what really matters to me is the size of the government, because the only way that you get a big government is by taking a lot from people who should be like making decisions about how they produce in the world based on each other and not having to take into account how much of it will be taken away. That's fine. And if you've like gone to the trouble of doing that, then that's a fine thing to pursue. But don't get so caught up in like, what are libertarians, this group of which I am a part? Like, <laughs> right. don't worry so much about that. Think about people and think about your goals and like your end goals. And then you can be a libertarian, but acknowledge that that's a political coalition that's kind of going after something that looks the same. And it 
it does matter, right? But I guess almost, I'm going to like channel Mike Munger, who you've had on the podcast as well. And maybe think about, do think about like the destination that you want to get to, right? That's a really important thing that guides what we do. But think about the way that people will be affected along the way, because we do have to keep thinking of each other as equals if we're liberals. Um, And the other thing that I hope people will take away is that it doesn't actually matter that much if libertarians are liberals. (laughs) (laughs) Worry about if you're a liberal, right? Um, Or not, if that's something that you like to worry about. Uh, Worry about if you think you fall in the libertarian tent. Don't obsess too much over who gets to count, because that's all beside the point. I think that's an excellent place to uh, tie it up. So Janet Bufton, thank you very much for joining me on The Curious Task today. Thanks so much, Alex. This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.